0: Hey, welcome. I'm sitting because I'm sick. (laughs) So uh, that's why my voice sounds so rich and wonderful, (laughs) just like Jeff Fry's voice. So I've been waiting for this my whole life. So I'm going to just sit for this just for a second. And if I feel like I need to sit during readings, I'll read. Uh, But hey, the first thing before we enter uh, our time of teaching, we're in the prophet Zephaniah today in our sermon series on the minor prophets. And before we do that, I've got a little exercise for all of us. Pull out your phone right now. I want everybody to pull out their phone. If you don't have text messaging capability on your phone, you do not have to pull it out. But if you're able to send texts and you have enough texts available, right? Does anybody remember when you had to pay per text? Mm hmm. Those are the days. Look at me being all nostalgic. Yeah, so with your phone out, here's my challenge for today. On April 4th, we start our we do one Alpha course a year, and Alpha is, is really the foundations, Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Sometimes people ask me that, and are you talking about how to be an Alpha male? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Alpha is just the first letter in the Greek. So it's really the beginnings of a conversation about what is Christianity and who is Jesus Christ, really the big questions, who am I, why do I exist, answered from a Christian perspective, and it was started in London, England. Have you heard of this place? And a a church called Holy Trinity Brompton started it because in London, uh, London's about 30 to 50 years ahead of us in its post-Christian nature, meaning, you know, people have been so far away from the church for so long that even though there's nice buildings everywhere and even though England used to be a grand uh, hub for Christianity, a lot of people don't know the basics of Christianity. So they started this alpha course maybe 20, 30 years ago and it's really been a huge success now people all over the world follow this pattern and we are a lot like London um, was when Alpha was started and so we've we've just started doing this and this would be our fourth year doing Alpha so really Alpha is great for anyone who um, doesn't feel like they have the basics of Christianity so that could be somebody who even grew up in the church but has been away for a while and maybe kinda never got past sort of the Sunday school level of teaching this would be a great refresher course on what are the basics Of Christianity who is Jesus uh, why do we need the cross all of these things and uh, it's also really good for those who have not grown up in a Christian context and Seattle's full of people like that and we've moved the location we used to do it down in Soto which is a little bit of a drive for us so we wanted to be closer to where we're actually living and working so we're doing it on Dexter Avenue at the Swedish Club now anybody can rent even though I am very Scandinavian you know, that's not why we're in. Okay. Anybody can rent. Uh, They've got a great space and it overlooks Lake Union. And uh, I'm going to post a video actually this week of The View. So springtime, The View. Uh, Dinner is served every week. We eat dinner together. We sit around tables and uh, we watch this video from this uh, great Englishman named Nicky Gumbel. Great accent. And he uh, shares something and then we talk about it at our table. So that's it. It's, It's really in line with our philosophy of great through great conversations. The truth of Jesus Christ bubbles up. So so that's what it is. It's close to Amazon. I walked it the other day. It's only like a 10-15 minute walk. So imagine if you had line bike. I mean, so maybe you work in that area, maybe you work downtown. Start thinking of who you could invite. And so here's the challenge this morning. You have your phones out. I want you to send a text literally right now to one person in your life who you think's ready I might be interested in having some conversations about Christianity. I'm not joking. I want you to send a text right now. This is not just something I do. I'm not recruiting all 100 people to come to this class, okay, we have 100 seats available and we, we always co-do it with another church, so we've got like 50 seats that we're trying to, to fill. Who is one person and this is what I want you to text them? Hey, comma, <laughs> have you ever heard of the alpha course? Question mark, smiley face, no. <laughs> Pick your own emoji, it could be the guy going like this, it could be the googly eyes, I like that one. Um, that's all I want you to text, and I hope that starts the conversation. Now it's, it's, it's not cheap marketing, you're honestly wondering have they ever heard of the alpha course, because right now in your mind you're thinking that person might actually be interested in this. This might be the next step in your relationship with them to get to help you have those conversations you've always wanted to have. Maybe you just feel like you're right on the brink and they're kind of curious about why you go to church all the time, why your faith is so important to you. Just say, hey, have you ever heard of the Alpha Course? They'll say, probably no, or maybe they'll say yeah, and just say, we're having one at our church, right there, right close to downtown, close to where you work. Maybe they don't work there, but there's really great parking at this facility. There's like 60, 70 parking spots free. Imagine that, downtown. So it's a really accessible, easy to be there. The food's going to be great. Just say, hey, have you heard of the Alpha Course? And I hope that in a room like this, we get 30 to 40 people who are say, no, but I, I might be interested in that. I just asked a friend of mine just last week, hey, would you want to come to the Alpha Course? And he's thinking about it. So now's the time to start asking, processing. Uh, it's about a month away. Can you send a text right now? Okay? Okay, send it right now. and I'm going to stand up. And you're going to send your text. And when you're done sending your text, you can grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of your row. And uh, we're going to open up to the book of Zephaniah, which is in the Minor Prophets. If you need to use the table of contents to find it, no problem. It's only three chapters, so it'd be hard to find just thumbing through. Feel free to use the table of contents as soon as you've sent your text. And if you can't think of one person who this course might be good for, you're a liar. And if you're not lying, you, you need to make some friends. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm just serious 95 percent of the people in the city this course would be great for okay so and if you really don't have any friends who aren't serious Christians you need to make some other friends you need to get out of your bubble and you need to start talking to and meeting co-workers and people on the street and join a gym and bocce ball club whatever you gotta do you gotta make some friends that don't already know Everything about Jesus, because they're all over the place. So we should have one person. Great question. Starts at 6.30. So dinner starts at 6.30. Um, we'll probably do like, you know, we can tell people like between 6 and 6.30, can, they can come early if, they, if they're coming straight from work or something. People will be there. But dinner will start at 6.30, and then usually the talk will start at 7. So we'll use a half an hour to just sit, talk at your tables, eat dinner. And it's a 10-week 10, 10 course. But, but they don't have to commit to the full 10 weeks up front. They can just come the first week, say check it out, come the first week. There's plenty of space, and, and once we kind of see who comes back after the first couple weeks, and even if they can't make it the first week, tell them to come to the second week. Uh, you know, we can send all the videos to them. On, uh, through. You know, they're all online, so it's not like they can, they can catch up on the content if they can't come to the first week. But we'd love to get this new venue. We have more space so we can invite more friends, and it's just a wonderful opportunity to to create a space where people can come and consider Jesus which is all what we're all about without having to sit through a sermon on Zephaniah okay (laughs) let's just be honest (laughs) we need other spaces besides Sunday morning Zephaniah are you ready okay we're actually doing the family member class at the new venue at the Swedish club this year I think Ryan, Ryan mentioned that we're doing it there so come to the family member class you can kind of see the great view All right. Clear as mud. And now to some more clear (laughs) teaching from Zephaniah. Zephaniah, are we all there? Uh, As we're doing every week, we're doing a whole book of the Bible because they're short books. They're minor prophets, not because their message is unimportant, but just because their length is minor. They're shorter, but their message is major. They're all preaching a major gospel, predicting the coming of Jesus, pointing to the coming of Jesus, and talking about who God actually is and how we interact with this God. And as you've seen, one of the themes that comes up over and over again is humility in the prophets. Two weeks ago, we talked about bowing down before God instead of feeling like you can stand up as though he were an equal. Again, we're back in Zephaniah to this posture of humility and that the people of God are to be humble people And there's nothing more humbling than going to a memorial service or a funeral. And that's where I was yesterday, and Pastor Ryan was, and a couple of us from Sedaris were there for Tracy Remick's memorial service. And when you stare death in the face, it's a real wake-up call. Most of us here are young Got the bull by the horns. We think we're in control. We think death is something far off. We think we're part of a church where we won't have to be a part of many funerals. That's what I thought. I thought, well, I'll learn how to do funerals much later in my career once all of you get old, (laughs) you know. But no, death is crouching at the door, waiting for any of us. And when you go to a memorial, when you realize it could come at any moment, It humbles you, and you stop thinking arrogant, prideful, hubris thoughts about how I can do and be whatever I want to be and do, and it doesn't matter. I was humbled yesterday, and I praise and I thank God for that reminder. I thank Him for the reminder that what we are doing what the Alpha Course will begin in people's lives, what Sunday mornings mean, what consider cohorts mean for us, that we are preparing people ultimately for death. What a a weird thought. Are you ready to meet your Maker? Or have you decided that you can save yourself? Zephaniah will ask the people of God, those questions. And they don't answer well. As we've seen in the Minor Prophets, Zephaniah falls the same outline. Basically, you are sinning against God. You're going the wrong direction. You're doing it your own way. If you don't repent, God will bring, bring destruction and judgment upon you. But if you do, it's always ended with hope, and we'll see it in Zephaniah. If you do, there is a future for you with God. On the other side of the judgment that comes, against sin and evil and waywardness so we see that in Zephaniah and he will teach us as we'll see the way through is the way of the humble servant the humble servant whom Jesus Christ is foremost so that's the book of Zephaniah let's start to read verse 1, chapter 1. In your Bibles, you'll notice the large number is the chapter number, and the small number is the verse number. So when I say 1, 1, I'm talking chapter 1, verse 1, okay? It says this, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Well, you say, like, oh, that's nice. What's that all about? Well, there's actually a couple pieces of really important information right here in the first verse that give us insights into Zephaniah's, or I like to call him Zephyr's, backstory. And that, there's two pieces. First, when he, why does he go? If you've been reading the prophets, it's usually he's the son of, and they only go one generation. Four generations back here, why does he do that? Well, the name Hezekiah, if you're a student of the Bible, should pop up as important. Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah. Hezekiah was one of the only kings that gets a good report card in Scripture. And so Hezekiah is the great grandfather of the prophet Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah was uh, an offspring of not the firstborn of Hezekiah, so he is not, his dad was never king. But he was still raised up in a royal lineage. This is important. It gives Zephaniah street cred. (laughs) He's like, I kind of know how these things go. Remember, my great-grandfather was a great king who knew the Lord and served him well. So that's the first piece of background information that will come up again and and will really help us. The second is uh, this King Josiah. Now, King Josiah became king when he was eight years old. eight years old and he begins to reign now you say well how do you how do you reign when you're eight years old with a lot of help and a lot of advisors a lot of people pointing you in the right direction actually eight-year-olds in some ways are probably better kings because they don't know what they're doing and so they rely on other people with wisdom and what most scholars believe is that zephaniah was one of those wise counselors And Josiah, from a very young age, listened and saw the wisdom, saw that the Spirit of the Lord was with Zephaniah, the prophet, and listened to his teachings. And so Josiah was king between when the Assyrians defeated the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember the splitting of the kingdoms during the civil war that happened in Israel. And so he was king of the south, and king of the north had just been defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And he falls right in between there, and eventually. The south will be conquered by the Babylonians. So, Josiah falls right in the middle there, and he begins reigning as a young child, and listen to the words of Josiah, and we'll see why that, or to Zephaniah, we'll see why that's important. We'll see why that's so important here in a second, because Zephaniah, the words that he's spoken here, would have been heard and taken in by King Josiah. Okay? So here we go. Verse 2, verse 2. So verse 9 goes like this. This is God's warning. This is God's warning to the people of Israel. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I just realized, I think I'm reading in the NIV here and you have the ESV, but you can do the translation. It's close enough, okay? I did my notes this week in the NIV. (laughs) It's one of those weeks. This is a pretty harsh warning of a coming destruction. Pick it up in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from the place every remnant of Baal, that's a foreign god, The names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, they're worshiping the stars, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, another foreign god. Here's what's happening. You have people who are just straight up worshiping other gods and not the one true god, Yahweh. You have those who are worshiping Yahweh, but then have also decided I'll just worship these other foreign gods as well. Be silent, verse 7, before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all the clad in the foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish and all who avoid, avoid stepping on the threshold who will fill the temple of their, I will fill the temple of the gods with violence and deceit. Do you hear the constant condemnation of worshiping other gods? The idolatry of the people of God that they, yes, maybe worship Jesus, but they also tend to worship the gods of the culture as well. Nothing new under the sun. That's happening right here in our church. It's happening in churches across this city, churches across this country, That we worship Jesus, maybe, yes, but we also worship the gods of our culture, the gods of America, the American dream, capitalism, maybe political party of our choice. We are all idolatrous, and God says, if we do not stop worshiping false gods, he will come and wipe us clean. at okay, verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills, wail you who live in the market district, wail you who live in Belltown, oh wait, no, that's the NIV, sorry. <laughs> wail you who live on Capitol Hill, no, wail you who live in Wallingford and Fremont and Green Lake and Ballard. All you merchants will be wiped out. All you trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. I will search Jerusalem with lamps or lanterns. What does it say in the ESV? Lamps. And this is the picture that I have. I think this is a picture. Have you ever heard of the Hound of Heaven? Ever heard that saying? It actually comes from an English poet named Francis Thompson. Thompson's here? No, sorry, Thompson's called out. Okay. Great, great, great grandfather of Ben Thompson. No, I don't know. Francis Thompson wrote a, called the Hound of Heaven. And the Hound of Heaven is actually Jesus Christ himself who has sent his spirit, who searches out the people. And I have this picture, of, and I have a country song called Big Red in my head. Any country fans? Okay. Big Red's about, big Red's about a big bloodhound who, who people break out of prison and they go hunting for the escaped prisoners. Also a great image for what I picture right now is God with a lantern searching out the sinners of Jerusalem, looking for them. The Hound of Heaven from the poem, or maybe how you've heard that before, is a good thing. Because it shows us how God searches us out wherever we are, and He finds us. And those who are contrite and humble, He makes His own. But it appears here that the reverse is true as well. That God is searching out our sin. We cannot hide our sin just because you think nobody saw you do it. God saw in the hound of heaven with His lantern, God is walking through your streets, through your city, searching out, for all false worship, all idolatry, all forms of things against His will, and He will find you. It's a haunting picture. Are you haunted by that? If you're not haunted by that, you're not listening. You cannot hide from God. He sees you. He knows where you are. Your sin will be found out. This is the picture Zephaniah gives us, and it should terrify us. Here's what he says. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who thinks the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Here's what he's talking about. When you're fermenting the wine, at the bottom of the wine barrel is all the sediments that that sort of sit there during the process, and they're hard to get out, so they kind of clump together. And if you don't clean that out, it will end up infecting all the other new wine that you pour in there to ferment. And this is what God is saying. For all you who think, oh, God's a good God. He won't do anything, either good or bad. I've read about Jesus. I've heard about his love. And they become complacent God will clean you out. He will remove you. And why will He remove you? So that you don't corrupt the next batch. Your complacency, your preaching that God is just love and He will do nothing, either good or bad, is corrupting other people and He will remove you from His people. If you are complacent because you are dangerous and the Lord cares about His own, this stuff matters to God. Complacency matters to God. And He will search Jerusalem with lamps, finding the complacent and removing them from His people so that they do not corrupt the next generation. It's it's haunting. Let's keep going their wealth often wealth leads to complacency will be plundered their houses demolished they will build houses but not live in them they will plant vineyards but not drink the wine complacency often follows from wealth and security and power Because we say, why would I want to rock the boat? Things are working well for me. I'm terrified that this is us, friends. That we are complacent. That we think death is far off. That God will do nothing, either good or bad to us, because we come to church sometimes. Because we don't say anything bad about God because we worship Him him even though we're worshiping other gods. Well, at least I'm worshiping Him. God have mercy on us. Open our eyes. Help us to see if we are just by name only followers of Jesus. Or do we actually listen to our God and do what He says and love as he loves, and sacrifice as he sacrificed. Otherwise, we're just living as practical atheists. Yes, we say there's a God, but we don't think he will do anything. That's the same as saying, because he is nothing. He is no God. God. The definition of atheism remember you can invite your friends to Alpha (laughs) where a very kind gentle-hearted British man will tell them you are loved (laughs) okay so you are loved that's why God's telling you this he doesn't want to have to wipe you from the bottom of the barrel so that you don't corrupt (laughs) okay he loves you thank you for telling me this god i needed this me- i need this message i can slip into complacency okay so what what's going on here now remember now remember zephaniah let's have one more comment about this wealth thing silver and gold right You see, uh, let's actually look look at verse 17. It says this, I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In fire of His jealousy, the whole world will be consumed for He will make a sudden end to all who live in the earth. Silver and gold, silver and gold. Zephaniah knows this. He grew up in the royal family. He knows that silver and gold will not save you. He has so much street cred here. He's not just like a poor person saying, you know what, having a lot of money is not that good. He's on the opposite side. He's like, no, I actually know that it won't save you. I've experienced it. I've gone on all the best vacations. I've eaten at all the best restaurants. I've had large amounts of money in my bank account. I know it will not save you. You have so much street cred. If you you want to know if it's true, maybe you didn't grow up with a lot. My father did not grow up with a lot. And he made a very good living for his family. He just wanted to give more to his family. My experience was very different. I grew up with a lot. And I see that that will not save you. And I'm going way back the other way. My great my grandfather was a carpenter. He made cabinets here in Seattle, Lake City. My dad was a very successful businessman, CFO and CEO of companies. I'm going back to being a carpenter. <laughs> not because anything my dad did was wrong, but I realized when my sister died that that money was not going to save anybody. It was nothing. You see, everything that the world has to offer is nothing. It is no thing. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. It is like a dust. Zephaniah knows that. He knows that all the wealth in the kingdom, all the power in the kingdom, all the influence, all the authority in the kingdom, it means nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing God. Friends, don't, I don't know what, how you grew up and if you think, man, if I could just make this much money, then life will be good. No. That is a lie. It is not true. You will build houses and somebody else will live in them. That's what Zephaniah says. So what can save them if not silver or gold, if not power and authority and title and position? What can save them? Look at verse chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He will give us the answer. It is humility and nothing else that saves us from the wrath of God. Here we go. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives. You see, there's still time. There's still time to turn from these lies that we have believed. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. And look here, verse 3 Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. What are your sins against the Lord? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us have offended God. We are under his condemnation apart from the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, his son. What are your sins against the Lord? Zephaniah says, Each and every one of us has them. Have you identified them? And what will you do about them? He said, I don't like to think about my sin. That's complacency. You need to think about it. You need to search your heart and your mind. What are you worshiping that is not God? What are you saying that God has said that you don't believe him? That's a sin. Every thought, action that is counter to God's will and his command that he's given to us, his revelation is a sin. Identify it and then say, what am I gonna do about it? Because see, here's what happens when you realize, when you think about everything God's commanded and what you have not done, or everything he's commanded you to do, and you've done the opposite, that terror should strike you. And the picture of the hound of heaven with his lantern walking through your neighborhood and your streets should come to mind. And you have two options. When you see your sin against the Lord correctly, you can either, one, run and hide from that lantern man. Run and hide. Guess who did that? The third chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve. They ran and hid. We've been running and hiding for a long time. The second option is to seek and find that lantern man before he finds you. (laughs) I just love that picture. And when you find him, you don't stand up and be like, you're it, <laughs> okay? You bow down and you ask for his mercy and maybe, Zephaniah says, you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord. Zephaniah doesn't have the privilege of knowing that Jesus Christ spread his arms wide on the cross so that there was much shelter under his wings. We have that knowledge. Will you run and hide from that lantern man? Will you seek and find him and ask for his grace and mercy? That is humility. Humility. And where does humility come from? Where does it begin? How do we conjure up humility in our hearts? Thankfulness. This is where it begins, thankfulness. John Calvin said thankfulness is the soil that, does not, that pride does not easily grow in. Thankfulness is the soil that pride does not easily grow in. So what should we be thankful for? How do we cultivate a thankful heart? First, we see what God has done. The Old Testament saints, because they had not had the coming of Jesus Christ the Messiah, they would look to the Exodus and remember the Exodus and what God had done to bring them out of slavery and fed them and give them water. In 40 years in the wilderness, they remembered what God had done for them. We, as New Testament saints, after the coming of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, we look to and think of often the greater exodus, our salvation from sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. See what God has done and your heart will become thankful, if you see it rightly. See what He has given you. He has given you food and shelter and warmth and friends and community, and He's given you His Son, Jesus Christ. Seek what the Lord has given and your heart will begin to become a thankful heart. See who the Lord is, who God is. See his power and his might and his righteousness. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go look that up. See who he is actually and then when you realize he wants anything to do with you, you will become thankful. Wow, he wants to, he wants to talk with me? He wants to spend eternity with me? Oh my gosh. So thankful. Only when we are leaning into the, into the actions and the gifts and the character of God will we have a heart that is cultivated into thankfulness. Will we begin to make the correct choice in the light of the terror of our sinfulness and instead of hiding, we will pursue the lantern man and find him as fast as we can. But we will not if our heart is not full of thanks, if we do not see God as he actually is. We do not need to be terrified of him. We must fear him for he is the God of awe and wonder but he's also the God who gave himself to us. Only with this heart of humility do we run to the feet rather than hide. Rather than try to buy our way to heaven. Rather than try to earn through our own good deeds and righteousness our way to heaven. Rather than fight God for our own salvation. Just humble yourself before him, seek him out, acknowledge who you are and who he is, your sin, your falling short, your waywardness, then he accepts us, and we can be sheltered from the wrath of God. Okay, so what does this thankfulness, this humble heart, what does it actually do? Because you say, like, I think I'm humble. Are you sure? (laughs) A lot of very prideful people have said they are humble. And they have PR teams whose entire job is to make them seem humble. How do we know if we're humble? Okay, here's something that's so easy. It's so great. Obey God's words. Is there anything, any action that's more humble than somebody else says do this and you just do it? Instead of fight tooth and nail with him? Well, what if I did it this way? Or I could see a way in which this actually would be the better way because of this. and Just do what he says to do. That is humility. I only know this because I was not a very humble kid. And every single thing my mother, especially, said to me, I would argue for half an hour with her <laughs> before, I finally, before she finally laid down the law. And I did it. Humility just begins, obey the words of God. He has asked you to do something, so you do it. Why? Because he is God and you are not. That is humility. So turn to 2 Kings 22, and I want to show you a great example of this from the king that was reigning when Zephaniah was writing these words. That's why we think that, Zep, or that uh, Josiah was actually listening. So 2 Kings 22, it's just a few flips back in your Bible, quite a few actually. Old Testament is very long. Second um, Kings twenty-two. The book of Kings, first and second Kings, are just a recording of all the kings of Israel, and they always give a little summary report card. How were they? And Josiah is one of the only ones that gets a good report card. Okay, so look at Second Kings twenty-two, and uh, again, I've got a different Bible than you. So two eleven, page two eleven. If you've got one of the one of our Bibles on the sides of the row, okay says this, Josiah, that's the king, was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years, okay? Eight years old, he begins his reign. Verse two, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, that's King David, sort of the epitome of good uh, kinging, not turning aside to the right or to the left followed the way of the lord that doesn't mean josiah was perfect it means generally you did well in algebra okay generally you get every question right but he was generally good and he's one of the only kings who gets this report card most of the other kings did what was evil in the eyes of the lord if you just read through the book of kings you'll see that okay so starts his reign at eight years reigns for 31 years Most believe that Zephaniah was prophesying to Josiah. He was in the royal court helping Josiah know the ways of the Lord and not the ways of the Lord and probably listening to the same words that we're listening to now. Not hard to believe that he would listen to uh, Zephaniah because Zephaniah was like him, raised up in a royal family, has a royal heritage. His great-great-grandfather was the good king, Hezekiah. So you see, it makes sense that young Josiah would look to Zephaniah for help. And these are the words Zephaniah gave to Josiah. Words of humility. Now look here, what happens? Verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, of sort of the highest religious position in the land, over the temple, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. <laughs> just, 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 Here's what's happening. Josiah is renovating the temple. They're doing some renovation, updating the temple, and in like the basement of the temple or something, they uncover some things, they're cleaning up, and they find the book of the law. Probably the first five books of the Old Testament, they find it, which means it was lost, <laughs> which means they weren't following. Of course they're worshiping other gods. They don't have the book. They don't know the words of God. They found it, and look what happens. This is unreal. Verse 11, why wasn't somebody looking for this already? It just shows you how far. You don't have access to a Bible? You don't think our city has access to Bibles? Why, Why hadn't they found it? They don't want to find it. They like that it's hidden. They like that it's cryptic behind all this Greek and Hebrew. No. You can find it. It's really easy nowadays to find good commentary on this Bible. It's not so hard to understand. They didn't want to find it. But then, Josiah's high, high priest, he finds it. Look at, uh, look at verse 10. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And <laughs> Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. He starts reading it, and the king goes, oh no. <laughs> he goes, oh no. Look at this. Verse 13 says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. I love that. Go and inquire. Actually missed in verse 11 here. Did you pick that up? Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. That was a sign of great lament and repentance and anguish. Oh my gosh, we have not been following God. He truly had a contrite heart. He truly believed that he was not walking in the ways of the Lord. And what happens is he sends for a prophet and, and, and I love it. It's, it, it's a female prophetess named Hulda. Great name to name your daughter, if you're having one, Hulda. She's a prophetess who speaks a prophecy over Josiah and his kingdom. Uh, look at verse uh, 19. And God tells Josiah and the people, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and its people, and that you had become accursed and laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. You see, Josiah and those who followed his, as we'll see, reforms, would be sheltered from the Lord's anger because they turned to him and didn't seek and run and hide from him. I love it. He wasn't just remorseful, though. He was humble. And his humility led to vigilant obedience. He was aggressively reforming his nation to look more in line with this book, the Word of God. And I want to just show you that because it's just beautiful. And I'm going to read it fast. So starting in verse 23, you're going to see all the things that just Josiah did. And he did them right away, okay? Here we go. We're going to read this fast. Verse 23, he sees, he laments, oh my gosh, he tears his robes, but he doesn't just, He doesn't just ha, he's not just contrite, he does something. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. He shared it with others. And keep it to himself. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. Then all the people pledged themselves to this covenant. The king then ordered the high priest and the priests next in rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made to Baal and Asherah and the starry host. Get rid of them. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley. Oh my gosh. I wish I had time. That's the same valley that Jesus points to when he says all those who don't follow me will end up like the burning trash heaps in the Kidron Valley. <sighs> He did away, verse 5, with the pagan priests. He appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense in the high places of the towns of Judah and those around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, false god. To the sun and the moon, false gods. To the constellations and the starry hosts, false gods. He took the Asherah poles from the temple of the Lord in the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it into powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes. At some of these worship sites, there was prostitution happening. You would have sex as a way of worshiping these gods with prostitutes. Don't pretend that's not happening in this nation. he broke down the shrines at the gates of the entrance of the gate of Joshua the city go- of the city governor which on the left of the city gate although the priests of the high governor which is on the left of the city gate although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the lord in jerusalem they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests he desecrated Topeth, which was in the valley of ben hinnom so no one could use the sa- use it to sacrifice his son or his daughter in the fire of molech molech worship included child sacrifice. You don't think that happens in our world? Mm -hmm. Verse 12. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars of Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them into pieces, threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were the east of Jerusalem, on the south of the hill of corruption, the ones Solomon the king of Israel had built for the vile goddess of the Sidians. <sighs> Keep going. Verse 15, even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam some of Nabat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar in the high place was demolished. He burned the high place in the ground to powder. Now the reason why that's so important is it had been really nice infrastructure there. Okay, Really nice temple at Bethel. It was the place of worship for the northern kingdom. And so even the really nice palaces, we're burning that to the ground too. We're burning everything to the ground that is not worship of Yahweh. Do you see it? Do you see how thorough, how vigilant his obedience is to the word of God? Doesn't matter how much you've put into this thing, how much wealth you've created. If it is an act of worship to a God other than the one true God, you must burn it. You must cut out your eye, Jesus says, if it's causing you to sin. That's really nice. I'm sure God would just want... No. If it is an act of worship still in your heart, you must remove it. And I just love Josiah's reforms are so thorough. His obedience so full it gives us a great example of what humility actually means. This stuff matters. Proper worship matters. The the humbleness of your heart matters. Obeying God's Word and all of it matters. It's not just an add-on. It's just not an elective course. It's not just a nice gesture to God. It is not inconsequential. Everything. You see that? Everything, Josiah Everything needs to go. You need to burn it if it is or was created in the worship of another God. This is our humility. You can't just say, I'm humble. You must, as 2 3 says, back to Zephaniah, what does it say? What does what chapter 2, verse 3 say? You don't just get to say you're humble. What does it say? It doesn't say say you're humble. It says seek humility. Seek it out. That is an active verb. You must seek humility. You must go and do something. Words are cheap. Actions are profound. Actions are profound. Look at the opposite of this in chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, Zephaniah, verse 2. The opposite of this. She obeys, speaking of the city of Jerusalem the city of oppressors. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. That's the opposite of 2-3. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Which verse describes you better? Verse 2-3 or verse 3-2? Read it again. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Or, do you seek the Lord? Do you seek righteousness? Do you do what He commands? Do you seek humility? Which describes you? I I would encourage you, go home. Sermons aren't just for Sunday. Go home this week and make a list. Make a little T-chart. Verse 2-3, verse 3-2. And be honest with yourself. Which describes you better? Which actual, tangible actions fit into those categories? Again, words are cheap. Sentiment is cheap. Don't say, I seek the Lord generally in my heart. What are you doing? What are you correcting in your life? What has changed in the way you actually live because you are following God's Word? I'm telling you this because I love you. Now here's a big rustle. You're saying to me, Dave, I, know, I get it. Humility is important to the people of God. But if I'm honest, and I look around at my world, it seems to me that the prideful prosper. That in this city, in our competitive world, it's the prideful that prosper. And I have to agree. They do. They do. But let me read you something Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. I'll just read it to you. Now when they saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. This is Jesus. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of Man, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, it's true. You look around at this world and the pride and the hubris, and it seems to be working for those people. But our kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is coming to take over this world. And you have to ask yourself the question, do you want, between now and when you die, to prosper? Or do you want to prosper forevermore? And yes, it will include mourning and sacrifice and persecution because you're trying to follow, out of humility, the words of God. But God promises you something so much better. That security, and nice meals, and fancy cars, and power, and persuasion in this life. He promises you everything that is to come. Would you pray? Father, we are at a loss. We struggle to see and believe at times that You are good, that You want our best because we look around and we see people doing things not Your way, but their way, and it seems to be working for them. God, we can't see. We we hear these words that, that Your kingdom is coming, but it's hard to believe. And God, that is really the crux. We need more faith. Faith is humility. It is trusting you because you've said it, not because we've seen it. That is faith. God, give us more faith. Increase our faith. Grow our faith. We want to seek you humbly. We want to obey what you have told us, but we need more faith. It is so hard when we see around us the ways of the world prospering. God, help us to know that your way is good and true like Josiah, help us to vigilantly follow the book of your law, because you've told us what is right and good and beautiful. Help us to trust you in humility. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What's so interesting, am I still on here? I'm not done talking to you. <laughs> What's so interesting is that um, the people in Zephaniah's time had his prophecy, and yet they still chose to do it their own way. They, they chose to dismiss it as sort of allegory or myth or generalities. Well, the same thing's true for us. <laughs> when we hear of the cross of Christ, we can either, and that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table, the cross of Christ, we can either choose to allegorize it mythologically, explain it away, deny it altogether, or we can see it and we can realize how serious God takes our sin, that he had to send his son to die for it. He could just wipe it away He can't. He had to send us. That's how serious he takes it and how much he loves us. But we have to see it clearly if we're actually going to experience that love. So that's what we do every week. We try to see our sin clearly, and we see it most clearly when we realize the lengths that God had to go to take care of it for us. So I hope you feel that. And I hope that, that, you know, I think we can come to this table at some time still hiding from God, still in our hearts hiding from Him and we do it just because we don't want other people in the room to think that we're not living for God don't do that Scripture warns us against that give over your sin run to the lantern man right now spend some time praying right now give over whatever in your life is keeping you from actually connecting with God don't come to this table until you have run to the lantern man and fallen on the ground and said God forgive me I'm a sinner I need you and the scandal of it all is he takes it right there and he makes us clean. And that's what we celebrate. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So you'll rip off a piece, you'll dip it in the cup, and you'll eat it, symbolizing that that transformation is beginning in your heart, that you're acknowledging your true sin, that you're asking God to take it for you, and that you know that he's actually. Don't come to this table unless you're doing that, friends. Otherwise, you are just building up rock around your heart and going through the motions, and that's complacency. And God will have to wipe that away at some point. So if, if you're trusting in Him, come to the table, experience Jesus Christ, His body and His blood broken for you.